As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, that music always gets me pumped up to start this podcast. How could it not? We usually don't hear the music on the front end when we do it, though. So, you know, you should be especially amped up now that you've heard it. I'm very amped up. Our uh, editor, producer, Lindsay Fulton, she just decided just now to start playing it at the beginning so we could actually hear it. And I'm, I'm all I'm ready to go take the field. Put me in, coach. All right, Stu. So that is the pep talk you needed. It's going to take this podcast to the next level. Although, as we say that, I do think we owe, owe uh, our audience a big thank you because we have seen some numbers and we've seen a pretty significant bump in subscribers since Wednesday. Since the beginning of the season, it turns out that all those times I said, if you enjoy the audible, please subscribe. People actually listened. People actually did it. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. Great growth uh, this season. Uh, In terms of what's going on in college football right now, a crazy, crazy story on Tuesday. I was, Bruce, I was at uh, Starbucks, as I often am working during the day, and no, I had just gotten there, and I checked my phone, and it's just one of those things where sometimes you happen to check email at the exact moment that something comes in, and it comes in, and it says, it's from Wake Forest, and it says, investigation, in the subject line. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, there was an NCAA investigation, we didn't even know about it. Mm-mm. I had forgotten about the thing at Louisville, with the game plan that, yeah. uh, that got yeah. discovered. So I'd forgotten about that, and I opened it up, and I couldn't believe what I'm reading. That the school, that Wake Forest itself is saying, we've done an investigation, we figured it out. Our own radio broadcaster, a former coach, a former player there, was leaking information to the other two opponents, and he's been doing it since 2014. It's nuts. Yeah, you know, it's weird because you and I had talked a, uh, offline a little bit about what we thought might, you know, could be in the works when the way it was worded as a breach of information, right? It was just kind of a kind of a head scratcher. And then to to hear the what happened. Now, I'll, I'll say this. I actually know Tommy Elrod decent. Um, I had, I didn't know him when he was a coach at Wake Forest, but uh, three years ago, it was actually my first assignment at Fox. I covered the ACC media days. I was supposed to go interview uh, Jameis Winston and Jimbo Fisher and Bobby Petrino, ironically enough, uh, for uh, 
America's pregame and Fox Sports Live. And at one of the uh, lunches, Tommy Elrod came over to me and sat down and we talked. And I think he had told me he had read one of my books. And, you know, we just kind of talked for like 20 minutes. And, you know, we kind of stayed in touch a little bit. I talked to him a handful of times once, you know, Jim Grove, who's his mentor, had got back into coaching at, at uh, Baylor. So when I saw this, I was like, whoa, this is this is, uh, you know, maybe do a double take. Cause I actually, like I said, I know the guy, I can't say like, you know, I know him that well, but I definitely would say I know him. I've talked to him a handful of times this year. So it was just kind of, it was an eye opener. And then, you know, I saw, you know, some folks connect, you know, trying to connect the dots and with, with staffers at places that he, you know, that he guys, he used to work with at Wake Forest who are now at other places who had faced Wake Forest um, it's an intriguing story and I'm curious to see, you know, what the motive, you know, if there'll be more information out there about why this actually happened. All right. Well, let's piece together the timeline of events here. Tommy Elrod played at Wake Forest in the nineties. He, like you said, Jim Grobe was his mentor. I believe he started as a GA and worked his way up. Jim Grobe gets fired in 2013 and Elrod does not get retained by Dave Clausen, the new coach. He then moves over and becomes the radio analyst. Is it as simple, do we think, as he had an axe to grind and he wanted to undermine the coach who didn't keep him? I don't know. I, I mean, right now, it could be anything. You know, I saw people speculating, like, what else could he have possibly had to gain by doing this? Um, you know, beyond well, that, Well, it depends. To- One big factor in that is, was he... Was he just giving this information or was he selling it? Was he making money off of right. it? Did he need the money? Right. Did he have gambling debts? Did he – I mean the possibilities are endless. I, I'm sorry to make light of this, but I just find this story to be more amusing than I do uh, like – like I don't have any hot takes to give you about this. I'm just uh, I'm just fascinated by it. Yeah, well, well the question then is what's the next step? Does the ACC end up um, – does the ACC end up – you know, investigating it further to see, you know, what happens on the other end of this. Because if that's the case, you know, I mean, where does this fall on the category of gamesmanship? You know, like we, there was a lot of talk this uh, this year about sign stealing and signal stealing is okay, but there's it's within limits. Obviously, this would seem like it would cross another threshold uh, above and beyond what's, what's right. considered gamesmanship. Well, to me, that raises the most interesting ethical question of this, which I've seen people kind of bouncing, you know, taking several different angles on. So, look, like you said, gamesmanship is a huge part of the sport within the sport. People are always trying to figure out other teams' signals. You always hear rumors about, I mean, there's a reason coaches are so paranoid about people being at practice. Somebody got a friend at the other school and he's going to tell them stuff. Let's just be clear if. If there was something illegal that went on here, then that's another story. But do you think, let's say they've connected the dots, like he reached out to an assistant at Louisville, said, I have this information, do you want it? And the guy said, of course we do. Is that really wrong? I mean, he didn't, they didn't sabotage Wake Forest. Somebody offered it up to them. Are you really going to say no to that? I don't think a lot of coaches would. I don't think they would. I wouldn't think any coaches would say no to that, although the email did say, did phrase it as he either, you know, gave or offered up, as in maybe somebody didn't take take them up on the offer. I mean, 
There's a lot of questions left unanswered by this, and I'm curious how much more we'll find out as this thing kind of gets poked at and prodded at further. And I think that just adding to why it's such an amazing story is that it also comes complete with the best ha- one of the best hashtags I've ever seen on the internet, which is, of course, WikiLeaks. So I look forward to, I mean, this is, like you said, it's not the end of it. A lot of people have a lot of questions to answer. Um, we, we don't know how many other ACC schools took them up on the offer. We don't even necessarily know what, you know, I've seen people say, oh, how did, that's amazing that Wake Forest won six games when the other teams had their game plan. We don't know that they had their full game plan. You know, they might have had known about a couple plays or something like that. So I'm fascinated to find out. Same here, same here, and uh, I'm sure we'll have more uh, details to talk about in the coming weeks. Coaching carousel, as of today, is over. I, I don't believe that. I believe something else will happen, but right now... No, the head coaching carousel is over. Oh, sure. There's still a lot of stuff. Every that, FBS I mean, head coaching job has been filled to this point. Mike Sanford, Notre Dame's offensive coordinator, who's kind of had a meteoric rise here the last few years, gets the head coaching job at Western Kentucky, where he used to work... Uh, as an assistant, I believe, under Willie Taggart. Hey, by the way, I, I tweeted this out earlier. Mike Sanford, he becomes the fifth guy who was a, on Jim Harbaugh's initial staff at Stanford to become an FBS head coach. That is pretty remarkable. You, the aforementioned Willie Taggart, uh, David Shaw, Scott Schaefer didn't last very long, uh, DJ Durkin now at Maryland, and now, obviously, Mike Sanford. That's a pretty good run, and that doesn't include some of the other guys who were, you know, the Derek Masons, the the Brian Polians, who were also worked under him, but came later. And there's some like Tim Drevno might be a head coach soon. You yeah. know, like there there could be even yeah. more. So it's uh, it reminds me of, you know, you see those pictures of like some of the old Hayden Fry staffs that had mm-hmm. um, Bill Snyder and Barry Alvarez and and Stoops was playing for him, or and then the Bill Snyder coaching tree. You know, well, I mean, Leach's first team at Texas Tech, there was a lot of guys on that, including players now, because Cliff Kingsbury was one of his quarterbacks. But I mean, even Dave Aranda was a GA at, at Texas Tech on that you know, on those early days. So it's interesting to see. Sometimes it's it's like these, you know, it's not like these teams. You know, Stanford was a really bad team that year. Obviously, Texas Tech was a you know was a I want to say like a seven and five team. But sometimes those are the ones which have like a great launch point for uh, for big coaching careers. So let's just assume it is over. Every job has been filled. Give me your nominee for best coaching hire. Like you think this was the one uh, that the school got most right. And then I don't want to say worst, but the one that the, maybe the biggest head scratcher. Uh, I'm going to say the one that I think where they did exceeded what I thought they could do because that's the way I would say it. I like the Tom Herman hired from Houston to Texas, but the one that I think the most exceeded what I thought they would do is Jeff Brom going to Purdue. That was the best get. That was my answer too. Yeah. Oh, Stu. All right. So what's your answer for worst? Again, I'm not saying worst, but I'm a little mm, skeptical of Luke Fickle at Cincinnati. And on the one hand, you know, it seems to make a lot of sense. He's coached and he played actually in that state. He, you know, I'm sure he has recruited heavily in Cincinnati. Um, maybe I can't get the weird 2011 interim season out of my head, but more it's that I thought they could have, you know, there's other guys. I mean, I thought they might have a shot at Jeff Brom or, or maybe even PJ Fleck. Um, 
I thought Charlie Strong would make a good fit there, but maybe uh, well, USF Strong beat got them a better job. Punch. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a better job? They're both in the same conference. It's a better job. I mean, look how many more players are at USF. By the way, USF also, Willie Taggart left behind more than Tommy Tuberville did. I mean, you inherit Quentin Flowers. I'm not saying Quentin Flowers will be up for the Heisman next year, but he is a stud quarterback. And how many BCS bowls has USF played in? I mean, we're talking about how many BCS bowls has Cincinnati played in? Stu, are you really thinking that (laughs) Cincinnati has a better job than USF? I think they're equal. I don't want to call you stupid in front of Lindsay, but I'm about to. I think Cincinnati Cincinnati was was possibly heading to the Big 12 a couple months ago. Dude, where did you grow up? I grew up in Cincinnati, but I wasn't like a huge UC football fan. Nobody really was. That was back in the days when they were losing 81 nothing to Penn State. Yeah, like USF is a really good job. It's in, in a place where there's a whole lot of recruits, but... You're also kind of apathetic. Like, they play in an NFL stadium. They don't have, like, rabid fans by any means. Cincinnati's got that cool on-campus stadium. They do pretty well for a crowd. I'm saying there's pluses and minuses to both. And I could see where Charlie... I mean, Charlie Strong makes more sense at USF because of his Florida history. There's no question about that. But it's not like I think, well, of course he would take USF over Cincinnati. The one thing I do love about our podcast is something I never would think is going to come up and piss me off. (laughs) <laughs> turned into you and I are arguing over which is a better job, uh, Cincinnati or USF. So yeah, um, um, I do appreciate that, even if I do think less of you right now. Well, okay. What's your most questionable one? I don't know. I mean, the fickle one surprised me a little bit, just in that I thought they would go offense because usually, I mean, Tommy Tuberville's you know was a defensive guy, and obviously Luke is a defensive guy. Um, I don't know. That's a questionable one. What do you think of the of the lane hire at FAU? I know we talked about this a little the other day. We talked about it on Monday because it had just gotten maybe just broke. or I mean, it was before his yeah. press conference. I, I think it's good for both parties. Now, that is contingent on Lane kind of living up to his word and being a more mature head coach about this. But people are really puzzled why he would take the job. It's because nobody higher than that was offering him a job, and he needed to get back into – well, let me ask you this. I, I saw Andy, our friend Andy Staples was there at the press conference. And just as he did in the press conference, Lane insisted to him after the fact that this was not about wanting to be a head coach again, that he just really believes in FAU and its potential there. Do you buy that? Uh, no. No, no I don't either. I think a lot of times coaches say things at their introductory press conference where they're stretching things. I think it's a, it has potential for him. And I think, you know, look, if he can get to eight wins there and do it without stirring things up too much, I think that's a good thing for him. You know, whether he was the offense coordinator at UCLA, LSU, or Alabama, I'm not sure he was going to be able to advance his cause to be a head coach any better than if he actually is a head coach. No, I mean, clearly these schools are still, they're scared. They're, they're scared off. I mean, he didn't. He didn't just like struggle on the field. You remember when he got fired by the Raiders? How how contentious that was. And you thought, okay, mm-hmm. well, that's weird. That's just Al Davis being out. But then he managed to burn bridges pretty much everywhere he went after that. So, you know, he said himself, he, he was thirty one. He thought he knew what he was doing. He didn't. Um, I'll be interested to see how the Saban influence shows up because to, before he got to Alabama, it was pretty much him trying to mimic everything Pete Carroll did. Well, what's interesting is after the national title game last year, you know, I spent a bunch of time 
shadowing lane as it was and we talked about you caused him to miss the what, bus yeah I don't, I don't know if it was quite that way but okay um one of the things he said was what he had learned from from Sabin was you know I'm he's going to delegate more and you know Nick Saban clearly is hands-on with his defense but he let Kirby Smart and now Pruitt run the defense when Lane was the head coach at USC I have a really distinct memory of this which was, yeah, he was the offensive coordinator as well. But I remember they played Notre Dame the year Notre Dame went to the title game. And they hit a big play. USC was down, and they were inside the, maybe the five-yard line. The guy was going to score, and then he got tackled. And then USC just had a just a, just a dreadful series in the red zone. I don't, and they got stoned at like the one, so they never even scored. And it was kind of a, you know, it felt like a bigger moment for Notre Dame. You know, like they just kind of bowed up and wouldn't let him score and all that. But, you know, you look at it and go, Lane is a really good play caller. I know guys who work with him on the offensive staff who think he is very, very, very smart and very good at um, scheming. But when he's trying to do all these other things, it makes it harder. And so I think the realization from him is, okay, I can't do everything. I got to, you know, even if it's what I think I'm best at, I got to let somebody else do it because if I want to be a head coach to do that. Now, the flip side is, you go to FAU, you don't have the resources that you would at other places. I mean, his staff, they don't have a huge budget. I mean, I know it was he's getting to make up, you know, $950,000 himself, which is a pay cut from where he was making, but he's probably going to have a very young staff to surround himself with. So, you would think he would be have to be a little more involved than he might want to be just because of, you know, this is still his program. Now, you mentioned, obviously, now the coaching carousel kind of shifts to coordinators. And we have, I just, there's only really one I want to get into. Because uh, because everybody, you know, Ed Ogeron was was targeting Lane Kiffin. That's not a possibility. So now he hired Pat Matt Canada from Pittsburgh. And people are making a really big deal out of this. I don't, I don't know much about Matt Canada. Why is this such a great hire for LSU? Well, I think, you know, look, there was one guy, one offensive coordinator who made it to the Broyles final, and it was Matt Canada. Um, I had done a story on him a couple of months ago. When you looked at what he has done there, it was very, very impressive. I mean, we'll start with this. So the ACC has the best group of quarterbacks in college football this year. Agree? I mean, it's it's not even close in my mind, right? Yeah. You got Lamar Jackson, won the Heisman. Deshaun Watson, you know, came in second. You have a guy in Mitch Trubisky, who a lot of people think might be the first quarterback taken. Um, and further down the list, you got Brad Kaya from Miami. And that's just a few of, you know, it's it's a very strong group. It was Peterman, you know, the Tennessee uh, cast-off, who actually led the ACC in quarterback rating and had a 26-6 to uh, touchdown-interception ratio. And that was under Matt Canada. I mean, that's... That's a, quite a testament because, I mean, there's a lot of people who couldn't even tell you who Pitt's receivers are. Yeah, they know who James Conner is. But after that, it starts getting really, really fuzzy. You know, when I had talked to people at LSU yesterday because they basically spent the day with him, they just were very impressed by how innovative he is at game planning and doing some of the things he's able to do. Well, that was a weird year. Wisconsin actually, that was his only season at Wisconsin in 2012. And they actually struggled most of the season. They got into the Big Ten title game at, I think, 7-5 and five because Ohio State and Penn State were ineligible and then just had that, 
like you said, like Melvin Gordon, just they just exploded on Nebraska. And I think that's the first time uh, people really uh, noticed him. He was at NIU for a year before that. But he didn't really do anything at NC State, right? I mean, I, well, I guess he, you know, he coached Jacoby Brissett, put him in the NFL. Yeah, they put up some big numbers. I'm looking at a rather unflattering chart of his total yards and yards per game rank in all of his stops. This pit offense was 48th. Who was the quarterback at Wisconsin that year, by the way? Ooh, good question. That was the year they had three different quarterbacks. Kurt Phillips, one-time Maryland darling Danny O'Brien, and Joel Stave. There you go. And Stave probably was the one that came and rescued them. Yeah, so... I mean, I'll take your word for it. I mean, look, Pitt beat two uh, top five teams this year. They won and they went and won at Clemson in a very high-scoring game. So I do think that he's done some impressive things. And, and LSU, that's what they want. They want innovative after things went in a rut with less miles. Um, one last uh, SEC-related item, actually, we didn't get to. Jarrett Stidham, the Baylor grad transfer who sat out this year, headed to Auburn and... Uh, this, to me, feels like one of those really big impact grad transfers because if we, we've talked about Auburn so many times, quarterback's been an issue for, for two years now. You know, you still don't really feel particularly great. I know you like Sean White, but, you know, he's not uh, Russell Wilson either. <laughs> Stidham yeah, not played a yeah. few games. Remember, he came in when Seth Russell got hurt as a true freshman. I actually remember that game very vividly because we were on set that night for a live countdown to kickoff afterward. So he makes his debut as a true freshman against Kansas State, tears it up, and then played a couple more games, and then he got hurt. Um, I guess what Auburn fans are kind of looking forward to is something I hadn't really thought of. When you think of Baylor and quarterbacks, you think passing, but he can actually run the ball too. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he is a very good athlete. I mean, he's proven. He's got three years left. I mean, I would argue that of all the quarterbacks who are available out there, and that includes grad transfers, he has by far the most upside, and um, you know Auburn. That's the biggest recruit of any player I think that's going to get signed this month of these JC guys. Because as we're taping this, you know this is the first day that junior college players can sign. Yep, and between that and Cameron Pedway uh, saying he's coming back next season, you know Auburn fans have a lot to be excited about there. Now we know where he's going. Does Malik Zaire become the next the next great free agent? I don't know about great, um, but he comes the next big free agent. The most sought Uh, after, yeah. Let me ask you this. Do you think Malik Zaire is a bigger get than Anu Solomon? Anu Solomon's actually done more. Well, he has, but he's had this weird career trajectory where he was most impressive as a freshman and actually led them to the Pac-12 title game. He hasn't been able to stay healthy. But even when he has been healthy, you know, they were terrible this year as an offense. So I'm going to defend Anu Solomon on this because... He was banged up most of the year, and when he played in games, he didn't even practice. He was healthy for maybe at the start of the year, and that's it. I mean, let me run this by you, and you tell me how you feel about it. So in Anu Solomon's first two years as a player, um, as a quarterback there, he led them to the Pac-12 title game, and his TD-to-interception ratio is 48-14. to That's pretty good for you to be shitting on him, Stu. <laughs> Hey, Lindsay, how do we get the E explicit tag on iTunes? Like, what do you have to do to earn that? Because I feel like Bruce has earned it at this point. I think Stu needs to wear a, uh, a vest with no shirt while he does the podcast. <laughs> that would get us explicit. I think I can just add it. I don't know if it's really like a badge of honor, though. 
I don't know if it would like scare people off or if we would just get like an edgier new audience. I love the idea that Stu will go back to his high school reunion at the Kevin Euclid High School somewhere in his beloved Cincinnati. And people were like, hey, there's Stu Mandel, the guy who has the explicit podcast. Who would have known that was coming? <laughs> um, I think you're right about Ani Solomon's first two seasons. This year in limited action, 58% completions, one touchdown, two interceptions. I guess you'll be able to tell by what level schools these guys end up at. I mean, I know Zaire is, is being sought after by Pitt, Pitt uh, UNC. UNC is after him. Uh, it, but I felt like Ani Solomon's going to end up at Hawaii or something like that. I could definitely see that Nick Rolovich, you know, taking him and him thinking, you know, he has Hawaii roots. Maybe they go back there. Yeah. All right. Enough of us babbling. You guys have sent so many great emails. We want to go email heavy here. So, Lindsay, just cue up the sound effect there because it's mailbag time. It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. Gosh, this is like a whole new recording experience. We're hearing this the same time you guys are. Yes. Hey, um, before we get into this quick, uh, we had our, we should announce this. We had our, our Fox Sports College Football All-America team for the season. Um, anyone there who you really push for and yet, you know, because there were four of us who voted, didn't make it? You caught me a little off guard there. Hold on. I tabulated it very quickly. Lindsay, I'm going to take that as Stu saying, you know what? I'm the one who tabulated the votes. I got whatever I wanted. You guys have no idea how the other, the other <laughs> two guys voted. That was the unofficial tiebreaker. If there were if there were two or three guys with the same votes, I just went with the one I like. No, um, I'll give you actually a really good uh, – the opposite though, not somebody I pushed for. All three of you guys had Cam Robinson on your first team, and I didn't have him on either the first or second team. Uh, I know that may seem strange because he won the Outland, but – I heard at times, you know, from various people that he wasn't having that great a year. And, you know, I think a couple of us leaned pretty heavily on pro football focus for this because you could tell by mm -hmm. some of the names of the offensive linemen that kept coming up. So you had Forrest Lamp in there? I did. I from Western Kentucky. <laughs> but he didn't ever really show up on their grades of the highest rated offensive linemen. Here's an interesting one for you. I'm glad you brought this up, actually. Cody O'Connell from Washington State. This kind of reinforces my point that I'm not sure sports writers should be picking the offensive lineman for any all-conference or all-American team. The Pac-12 coaches team, he was honorable mention all-Pac-12. He is a unanimous, including on ours, first-team All-American. Why the discrepancy? I'll tell you two things. You mentioned pro football focus. They love Cody O'Connell, and I they will tell you why I voted for him. I spent a couple of days in Pullman, and I know uh, the O-line coach there loves Cody O'Connell, too, and told me why he thinks he's so good. So I'm going to I'm gonna stick with that one. Like, if I can talk to a, a coach or a, a, certainly a position coach about their player, and they give me some, especially if it's an O-line thing, um, I feel pretty good about it now. Because... Uh, I don't know. It's, it's a hard deal. I mean, Aaron Taylor, who I used to work with, is you know knows more about NFL, off, knows more about O-line play than anybody who's at a keyboard and covers college football. Um, you know, he does his Joe Moore Award. He's part of a panel that rates offensive linemen. And it's like, it's hard. You can't see every snap. If a guy gives up what seems like two sacks in a game, and maybe it's not his fault, maybe, a, maybe somebody else blew a uh, assignment, or maybe a back wasn't where he was supposed to be, you know, we think the guy stinks and or, you know, thinks the guy have an awful game. That's not to absolve you from 
snubbing Cam Robinson one way or the other, or it's just like, you know, that's why it's tricky. It's, it's a lot easier, I feel like, to make a case for skill guys than it is on the O-line front. The O-line is just, I don't feel comfortable picking them at all. I'd also like to start a movement with All-American teams to modernize them a little bit. We had a situation where, you know, I went into it, gave you guys the instruction and everything to do two defensive ends and two defensive tackles. The problem is you don't want to leave off any of the three of Derek Barnett, Jonathan Allen, and Miles Garrett. I saw some people listing Jonathan Allen as a defensive tackle. Not on their official depth charts and everything else, he's listed as a defensive end, and I think he mostly plays defensive end, but he does move inside a little bit. And And that brings up the point that... Well, yeah, and same with Christian Wilkins at Clemson. I just think the sport, Jabril Peppers is not the only player in the country that plays multiple positions. And I think we need to start being a little bit more flexible and less rigid about, you know, uh, uh, Miles Garrett shouldn't have to, you know, be schlepped down to the second team because you're being so strict about ends versus tackles. I mean, to, to me, the four clear guys were Barnett, Allen, Ed Oliver, and Garrett. Here's the problem with you. You're saying we need to be more flexible. You're the one who created the rules for the for us on this one. You were like, I want this. I mean, here <laughs> well, I am. No, but I relaxed Ethan, it. Ethan Posick, uh, who played center but can play a bunch of different places. I'm trying to get him at guard because I want to have him and still have Tyler Orlovsky from West Virginia on my list. But you're so rigid. I don't know how your wife lives with you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> a character attack. I loosened the rules once you guys submitted Thanks. your votes and I realized that it was going to be a little harder to – be so rigid. All right. Let's do this mailbag. Lots of people had lots of good emails. This one actually is from Lieutenant Colonel Patrick J. Kendall of the U.S. Air Force. It's mid-December, and all FBS head coach jobs are filled. Stewart tweeted that someone will jump to the NFL starting the cycle again. I do believe that. I don't know if he'd go, but why wouldn't an NFL team reach out to Chris Peterson? Seems like his style would be one of the few that could do well at the next level. Thanks for the outstanding podcast. Thank you for your service. Yes, thank you, Patrick, for your service and for your nice email um, and for making what I think is a very good point. I'm not sure why a, an NFL team wouldn't reach out to, to Chris Peterson. I think he would be one that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I woke up this morning, I saw Peter King had reported that, you know, I think there were three names he had mentioned that were potentially upward mobile this cycle. One was Mike McIntyre who, by the way, was, you know, a Bill Parcells guy with the Cowboys as NFL experience. Another one was Dan Mullen, who has, you know, a quarterback who's opened a lot of eyes there this year in, uh, you know, certainly in Dak Prescott. Uh, you know, he'd also mentioned David Shaw and David, David Shaw had no, uh, no interest in the third name was Paul Christ, who we both agree has done a terrific job at Wisconsin. And, you know, I could see Paul Christ style playing in the NFL as well. That's a good point about Dan Mullen. You know, you could just see the NFL is such kind of an overreaction league. They'd be like, wow, this guy is the guy who coached Dan, Dak Prescott. We need to hire him. And that would be fine, but it would be ironic because Dan Mullen has tried so hard to get out of Mississippi State. He's tried for so many different college jobs and never gotten them. Wouldn't it be something if he then gets an NFL head coaching job? Yeah, I know. And I'm I'm very curious now. I of the names out there, and I think we had maybe kicked this around the other day on the podcast, or maybe we kicked it around offline. I don't even remember. Um, the one name I could say I would be curious if somebody in the NFL made a run at because there's been interest in him before is James Franklin. You know, he had, he had interest in the Texans' job like 
I want to say four or five years ago. Okay, I got to stop you here. We've joked in the past about your man crush on Scooby, right? A couple years ago. This year, your man crush is clearly James Franklin. You're always tweeting about coach of the year. You brought it up on here. I saw you were very mad. I don't even know which coach of the year award it is. It left him out of the final. Of course, he should be a finalist for coach of the year. Now you want to ship him off to the NFL? No, What's I don't going want to on? Ship him off to the NFL. I'm saying, who do I think would have a shot if the NFL were going to look at? I would think they would look at him. No, that's, that makes a lot of sense. By the way, I'm glad you brought it up. Scooby Wright, I think, is reunited back home now with the Arizona Cardinals. So that's very cool, right? That's great. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad he's making it. You mentioned man crushes. Who would you own up to having a man crush who's college football related this year? Hmm, that's a great question. Oh, Jazz Peavy. I love the name most of all, but he's also like, I love the fact that we think Wisconsin traditionally, right? You think kind of slow and plodding. And all of a sudden, this guy will just flash across the screen for 40, 50-yard gain. Love Jazz Peavy. Okay. Any coach? So in other words, somebody who I'm like disproportionately higher on than everybody else? Yes. Um, sorry, I got nobody. I got nobody that nobody comes to me. You know who I thought you were going to say? Who? I thought you were going to say Kyle Whittingham. I have a standing man crush on Kyle Whittingham, who I just saw the other day, actually. Like, he's one of my favorites. He's always been one of my favorites. It's not unique to this year. Yes. Okay. Uh, from Quincy Bailey in Frankfurt, Ohio. This Alabama team appears to be on track to do what no other team has done. Go 15-0. and Minus a somewhat close game versus Ole Miss. No one has come close to beating them, just as Nebraska rolled through the Big 8. So are we watching greatness? But I don't get as excited about this Alabama team as I did that Nebraska team. Is it the lack of flashy Heisman contender like Tommy Frazier? Or maybe because back then I was a wide-eyed 20-year-old and now I'm a cynical 41-year-old. Sounds a little like my podcast colleague, by the way, Quincy. Uh, would, would like to know y'all's thoughts. Also, with a win, will West Virginia be the lowest-ranked 11-win team from a major conference ever? Stu, that's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, I don't have a good answer for that second one. You know, I think we always are nostalgic, right? And like he and I are almost the same age. I'm one year younger. And we're always nostalgic. Like for me, peak college football will always be like 1995, like right around there, 1995-ish. So, of course, I have like a special affinity for the Tommy Frazier Nebraska team. Before we even get into this, you see what we're doing here? This is exactly what happened to our guy Matt Leinert's USC team. Everybody wants to build you up into the greatest mm -hmm. of all time before you've actually finished the job. Just setting up for a Ohio State, Clemson, maybe Washington upset over Alabama and, and all of us hearing about how we – because you know what will happen if Alabama loses. All we're going to hear is how we, the media, overhyped Alabama. So I just want to throw that caveat out there that I'm not ready to say Alabama is the greatest team of all time or anything close to it yet. they got to finish the job. But I think he's got a point. Um, usually the teams we think of as the great teams have – a Heisman contending quarterback or running back uh, or like one superstar defensive player who's so much better than the others. And Alabama's just not like that. They're, you know, they're a rather, I don't want to say they're not a flashy offense because they're running a similar offense now to, to most teams in terms of Jalen Hurts running the spread. But yeah, they're not as glamorous on that side of the ball. And defensively, I actually find their defense to be more exciting than in years past because there's always the possibility they're going to score a touchdown. I mean, they're constantly, seems like, returning fumbles or block kicks or whatnot. So it's not like a 
bore you to death, kind of like some of his old teams. But I know I get what he's saying. This is not the kind of team that people, you know, just rally around because there's not I, I can't see a, people around the country like kids around the country are going to run out and buy Jalen Hurts jerseys just yet yeah uh, what I'd be curious and somebody else can do the math on this obviously this has not been a great year for the SEC uh, overall so I think dominating the SEC this year may not carry as much weight as it would have in years past you know if you want to do it historically and I think this is clearly the best team in the country right now but they beat Ole Miss who's proved to be a five and seven Ole Miss team they beat them by five points they beat LSU only by 10 and that game was very tight going into the fourth quarter and that's only a seven and four LSU team so you know I don't know I mean in retrospect the most impressive win on their resume was the one that happened in the beginning of the year when they crushed USC and obviously USC wasn't very good at that time so what am I saying here? Yeah, how they do in the playoff is going yes, to shape everybody's image of them ultimately. Thank you. Yeah, the Ohio State team two years ago gained almost all of their respect from the run they made in the playoff. Ezekiel Elliott, we've talked about, was an honorable mention All-Big Ten player that year who exploded in the postseason. But uh, just in case you are going to make these historical comparisons, everybody, let me run through 95 Nebraska real quick. Beat Oklahoma State 64 to 21, Michigan State 50 to 10, Arizona State 77 to 28. Pacific, how about that? Pacific appearing on the schedule 49 to 7, Washington State 35 21, Missouri 57 nothing, number 8, Kansas State 49 25, number 7, Colorado 44 21, Iowa State 73 14, number 10, Kansas, that's right, at number 10, Kansas, Glenn Mason there, 41 to 3. Oklahoma 37 to nothing and of course number 2 Florida 62 to 24. I don't know if we'll ever see that again. No, I don't think so. And by the way, just to finish up with what Quincy had asked, he's got a good point because of the West Virginia factor because you now that we teams are playing more games, so you'll have a chance to get to 11, but just looking in the last 3 years, there hasn't been a power of 5. Louisville uh, it, back when Charlie Strong was there, was eleven and one, but that was, and they finished eighteenth. But Louisville wasn't in the ACC at that time, so you'd have a lot of teams that were like ten and two. But you know, to find an eleven win team, I mean, I've already gone back to uh, to two thousand and twelve, and well, actually, I stand corrected. In two thousand twelve, Florida State eleven and two won the Orange Bowl, finished twelfth. Yeah. You wouldn't expect that. I guess that was the uh, lack of respect for the NIU win in the Orange Bowl. I don't know how much credit West Virginia is going to get for beating Miami. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of stunned to see that. I mean, I'm glad we kind of cleared that up just because, you know, I wouldn't have believed if I didn't see it either. But now that, you you know, we're pointing it out. Yeah, that's true. All right, Stu, next. Bruce and Stewart, with the coaching carousel mostly stopped, I have to ask, what happened to P.J. Fleck? A month ago, he was the hottest up-and-comer not named Tom Herman, yet he's still at Western Michigan, and media reports made it seem like he wasn't even particularly close to grabbing any of the open gigs. Keep up the good work, Joseph Sura. Uh, you know what? I'm not sure anything really happened to P.J. Fleck other than, you know, there was interest in him from Purdue, I'm told, and he wasn't that fired up about it. You know, he's got a lot of, he's got young kids, a bunch of them, and he likes it there. They're, he and his New wife are pretty comfortable in Kalamazoo. He's not going to just jump at a job just to take a job. Uh, I was told, and I think we reported this a couple of weeks ago, that 
the scenario where he'd be kind of like Tom Herman was last year and Herman passed up some pretty good jobs, but not great jobs, albeit, you know, South Carolina to stay at Houston for another year. They boosted his, his, uh, his deal considerably. And then he figured, all right, let's see what happens a year later. I think PJ flex in the same situation. Um, now I think one thing that's kind of happened a little bit is I think, Maybe we in the media probably overinflated his opportunities a little bit. The idea that you would, you know, at 35, you'd be able to parlay a Mac job into an Oregon seemed a little bit of a stretch. I mean, as we said before, I know you and I have talked about this. Last year's hot coach in the Mac was Matt Campbell, really good coach. He ended up with Iowa State. The difference between Iowa State jobs and Oregon is pretty significant. So I think maybe that was kind of something where we probably got over our skis a little bit. Well, and to give you credit, you kept reminding people of that, you, even as I and others were saying, well, why not? Why not, Oregon? You kept saying that might be too big a jump from the MAC. I wonder how much his opportunities next year at this time will be tied to whether they beat Wisconsin in this bowl game because Tom Herman didn't truly become the, the hot coach of the moment until you know, they were 12-1, and one, but it wasn't until they beat uh, Florida State in the bowl game that it just kind of took off. So... I mean, P.J. Fleck is getting a lot of acclaim. There's no question about that. But if they get run off the field by Wisconsin in the Cotton Bowl, um, then people might say, well, they were, he was just feasting on mediocre competition. So um, that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, good point. Um, I'm up next to uh, – before we get to Brian's question, I wanted to follow up on something. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago you asked me about what happens if somehow um, – Spencer Tillman gets food poisoning and does Brando take over both roles or do you know, what do they do in the emergency case? Yeah, that was a great email. You got an answer? Yeah, I got an answer. So it is kind of what you said, which is the radio guy who is, if they're connected, if there is no one, and I guess this has happened with baseball quite a bit and maybe some basketball would be, they would be brought in to try to handle it. Um, now in the case of, I would, I, cause I asked my producer this, I said, what would happen if, uh, you know, with our crew, if let's say, you know, Tim got really, really, really bad food poisoning and couldn't go on the air, um, Spencer, you know, I guess I would move up to the booth and Spencer and I would handle it that way. And Spencer's certainly adept at doing it. Um, and it would be that way. But otherwise, the, the fallback, I guess, is the radio announcer. Would he then not call the game for the radio or it would just become like a simulcast? It would be a simulcast. That's what they had told me, that it would be a simulcast. I'm glad you added that. I'm glad we got that answer. All right. So Brian's question, who pays for these student athletes to travel to the various award ceremonies? Is it the school they represent, the various award trusts, the athletes, or all of the above? Uh, You guys do great work. Thank you, Brian. Um, In the case of these are the award ceremonies that foot the bill. Um, one thing I am a little unclear of is remember a few years ago with, uh, I remember it came up because of, uh, Cedric Aboye and the, the, uh, insurance deal that, you know, schools can pick up the tab for, and it's out of a fund that also that fund covers, like, let's say, um, Austin cars going to big 10 media days and, you know, uh, Northwestern can pick up the tab for his suits, you know, to, to go do that. And that's part of that fun. Now, I know it had gotten kicked around on Twitter because of Lamar Jackson. Somebody pointed out what looked like Lamar Jackson's tux from the other day was on sale at Macy's. I don't think the Heisman 
or you know, in the case of the, uh, the award show I did the other night, the Lot Award or whatever, is picking up the tab for the players' clothes. I think the schools will handle that if the players need the help. Um, but otherwise, it's on the award ceremonies to fly them up and put them wherever they want to be put up. Correct. And in fact, Andrea Adelson from ESPN had a fantastic all-access story where she was kind of embedded with Lamar Jackson throughout his starting at the award ceremony in Atlanta through the um, Heisman. And uh, there were a lot of interesting details in there I didn't realize, including the fact I had no idea this was the case. The player who wins the Heisman, the Heisman that night upgrades them to a suite at the uh, Marriott Marquis. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Does Johnny come along with the suite to his entertainment, or how does that work? <laughs> yeah, like Johnny, not only did he show up at the Heisman, he started showing up in all of Lamar Jackson's pictures. Um, and then apparently part of her story actually was about how he got a little annoyed because then he went on Dan Patrick and Dan Patrick wanted to ask him about uh, Johnny Manziel. TMZ shoved a camera in his face and wanted to ask him about Johnny Manziel. Uh, if I'm Lamar Jackson, I'd be pretty annoyed about that too. Like, stop stealing my thunder. The gift that keeps on giving the downtown athletic club. All right. I'm going to go ahead and ask the next question. It's from, we'll share it here in Spokane, Washington. I work in TV and radio in town and listen to every podcast. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Will. I cover Bruce's boy, Mike Leach, always entertaining. And with the news about Deshaun Kaiser, I realized it turning pro, I realized it paves the way for one of Bruce's other guys, Brandon Wimbush, to see the field next year. Uh, Brandon, you know, look, Deshaun Kaiser is really talented. Got a big arm, everything really smart. Brandon Winbush has a has an electric arm too. I mean, that thing, the ball just jumps out of his hand. When he was at the Elite Eleven, the year he was there, um, you know, he on paper he should be a terrific quarterback. He's he can really run fast. He's got a really powerful arm. He's a very 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 smart kid. And I mean, the thing I heard about Kaiser from the Notre Dame guys a couple of weeks ago or ten days ago was he's inc- extremely football smart. And he's very intuitive and those things. I don't know if Brandon's that. I know Brandon's Brandon is very school smart. Um, and we'll see how it picks up. Because there are some guys who, um, and I'm not saying he's not this way, but there are some guys who are very, you know, academically smart. And yet football-wise, they don't process as quickly. We'll see how Brandon does. We'll see if, you know, how his touch is. I know they like also, um, you know, he mentioned Leach. Leach had a quarterback committed for a while, Ian Book. Um, who Notre Dame ended up uh, getting to decommit and taking. And I know they like him too, but I mean, clearly I think it's going to be Brandon's show and I expect him to be really good. Now what, what I think hurt Notre Dame's offense is they really had one receiver. It felt like, you know, hopefully for them, they will get their tight end, you know, eligible and back. He certainly would be a big weapon for them, but they were limited. They had one guy. And so I expect, I expect Brandon to have a really strong year, but I think they're going to miss not having Mike Sanford there. We'll see who they hire to replace him, but he, you know, he was a good sounding board for those quarterbacks. Just to be clear from before, you don't think there was any scenario where now that Kaiser's turning pro, Zaire stays in Notre Dame. I would doubt it because I think he probably knew Deshaun was leaving anyway. I think he'll be a good pickup for somebody. So we're going to hit a lull next week, the holiday lull, if you will. So I think only one podcast next week. Uh, as we get into holiday season. And then next thing you know, after Christmas, you and I both head to our respective playoff sites. Um, as always, if you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, and tell 10 of your friends while you're at it. Send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.